the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of His holy word. Amen. Amen. I have uh, a hero from church history, and I don't have to go back very far to talk about him. He only passed away in 2014. And you probably heard his name. It's hard to forget. Louis Zamperini. How many people have heard of Louis Zamperini? Oh, come on. I've mentioned him before. I am sure he was uh, a great uh, American athlete at the high school, college, and Olympic level. I don't know that he got an Olympic medal, but he went to the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games. Those were tough games. And he went this wiry runner. He also served as a World War II vet. In 1941, he was commissioned into the United States Air Force and served as a bombardier in B-24 Liberators, my favorite plane. He served well in the Pacific, but at one point his plane crashed and he was drifting at sea with a couple other guys for 47 days. You might guess that... uh, The title of his biography is appropriate, Unbroken. He survived that, only to be captured by the Japanese and to spend years in two, I think maybe three, different POW camps under the thumb of the Japanese and one particularly cruel captor who knew that Louis Zamperini was a famous American athlete. Oh, you run long distances, do you? Well, here, let me hit you and cause you pain. I hesitate to recommend reading the book that Laura Hildebrand wrote about this because the darkness is very dark. And the torture he endured is very hard to read. After the war, Louis struggled to overcome that ordeal long before PSTD was diagnosed and had a label he was experiencing, he was living it. He drank and was throwing his life away in California. Failed relationships, hurting the people that tried to love him. But he became a Christian. The grace of God broke upon that man's life and he was soundly converted and he would tell other people he became an evangelist. And he went, of all places, to Japan. 
Four days before his 81st birthday in January 1998, Zamperini ran a leg in the Olympic torch relay at the Winter Games in Nagano, Japan. You may have watched those on TV. This elderly man, a believer in Christ, went to Japan to help them celebrate the Olympic Games. And while there, Louis attempted to meet with his chief and most brutal tormentor during the war, Michuhiro Watanabe. But the man refused to see him. Louis left him a long letter offering forgiveness and mentioning the gospel, but never heard back. How is it that one who had not received mercy from those guards, indeed who, who cranked up the pain because of who he was, how could Louis show mercy to those captors, that enemy? It was because Louis Zamperini did receive mercy from God when he was converted, when he was born again. And then he extended Christian mercy to that same cruel man and served the Lord in ministry there and in the States. And he's not alone. There were many veterans from World War II who saw that the rest of the world was ignorant of Christ. And hundreds, if not thousands, of veterans went to Japan as missionaries. Louis reminds me of the Apostle Paul who was not receiving a lot of love from those Corinthians. They were pushing back. They were being difficult. And yet, Paul hangs in there with them. Because Paul had received mercy from God. Paul was leaning upon the ongoing mercy of God to himself to continue in the ministry and to bear with those Corinthians. And this biographical letter, all of 2 Corinthians, is very biographical. If you want to read a biography of Christian, this is pretty close. This is a lot of Paul's life, if read in concert with the narrative, the historical narrative of the book of Acts. And you see what makes him tick. And see how the Lord deals with men and women. What we have here in this opening chapter is a picture of, of Paul's ministry bearing up under difficulty. A lot of pastors are familiar with this passage. I hope you're familiar with this passage. Because it points you to the solutions that will help you not give up in the Christian life. We're going to talk about three headings. I, I put them all under the letter M. Mercy, method, and message. The mercy of God. And that comes first. It's significant. Then we'll talk about the method of Paul's ministry and the message of his ministry. The foundational mercy of God. Paul begins chapter 4 with this word, therefore. And it's, it's a causal link between what he's been talking about above and what he's about to say. What had he said up above? He said, I don't feel sufficient for this thing that God's called me to do, but God is my sufficiency. It's a new covenant, and God is at work in this. And he has a hope, and he has a boldness, and he feels more honored and blessed than even Moses to be a minister of this gospel. And he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
Don't race to the end of the verse without seeing what Paul is saying. He sets before you the foundation of his not losing heart. Uh, We have this ministry by the mercy of God. I am a recipient of the mercy of God, therefore I press on. Why would Paul lose heart? Well, if you remember the Corinthian context, and there had been a couple of letters, a couple of visits, the church was being difficult. They were attacking both his doctrine and his life, his person. Paul, you're kind of weak. Paul, we don't know how you make your plans. And we're not really sure about your gospel. Oh, my goodness. Pastors hear a lot of different complaints. Some are helpful criticism. Some are destructive criticism. Some are just about, you know, the color of the doors of the church. uh, You know, all sorts of things. But Paul was taking arrows to the chest. You're insufficient. You're weak. I don't know if you're reliable. And that Gospel, we've got guys telling us about Moses and the Old Covenant. You seem to be bypassing that. What's with your message, Paul? Are you really one of the twelve apostles? We have questions. It was personal and it was painful and it was important, especially the doctrinal questions. He'd already battled and shown how the new covenant was better than the old. That was a big part of it. But here he pauses It says, I'm not giving up. Even though there are more things to be said, I just want to go on record. By the mercy of God, I do not lose heart. Paul had been the recipient of mercy. Put a bookmark here and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of places in Acts to to see, for instance, Paul's conversion. And I hope you've heard of the Damascus Road. It's not just a geographical place that you look at on Google Earth between Jerusalem and Damascus in Syria, but it was the road upon which Paul, who was once Saul of Tarsus, was walking when he just happened to meet the risen, exalted, glorious, bright as the sun person of Jesus. And he was converted. And some of that language from Damascus Road comes into this testimonial today. How did I get to be here? He saw the light, literally. Let's look. Uh, Acts chapter 9, Paul tells his uh, uh, conversion story. I'll just read it quickly and you can follow along. Uh, 9 verse 1, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any may be found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, yes. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And an ice went, and Paul regained his sight, and Paul received his commission from the Lord. Paul would go on to describe that exact event two other times in chapter 22, and even before King Agrippa in chapter 26, and how Paul would connect his vision of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and his commission with having received the mercy of God. This is how he says it in chapter 26. Begins in uh, verse 12, but let me get to the uh, uh, part where he explains it uh, at the end. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was saved to serve. He had received mercy that he might extend a gospel ministry and show mercy to others. And the Damascus Road elements are found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul's talking about his ministry and not losing heart. There had been a light from heaven that shone upon him, and it was the glory of the ascended Jesus. In mercy, Christ told Paul to rise to his feet. Instead of saying, Paul, you've been persecuting me, I judge you, and you're done for. No, he received mercy. He was allowed to stand and to leave that encounter with the Holy Lord Jesus, to be forgiven and to be called into ministry. And he was given a brother who would help him and show him mercy. Paul would later write to Timothy, one of his disciples, also a pastor. 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul would confess, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was aware that God had withheld what he deserved. He had persecuted Christians. And now the Lord gave him the privilege of preaching and serving. So he says in 2 Corinthians 4, having received this mercy, this life, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That last phrase, we do not lose heart. The, the word heart is not in the Greek text. Uh, cardia. Uh, that, that's not there. There's a verb that's described by this English translation. It's a faithful translation. 
But sometimes we see the word heart and we think, you know, the is that am I doing it right? The heart, and we think uh, kind of simplistically or emotionally. Rather, it's a very sophisticated Greek verb. It means to not lose enthusiasm, to not be discouraged. It occurs in a few places. And the emphasis is that you will not relax your efforts, quoting from the uh, uh, theological lexicon of the New Testament. You will not relax one's effort, lose heart in the midst of difficulties, will not let go, interrupting one's perseverance before attaining one's goal, giving up rather than continuing the fight. This same word, which we translate not lose heart, that's, that's a good translation, occurs in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus gives the parable of the persistent widow. And it says there, Jesus told them this parable that they might continue to pray and not lose heart. It's not a Hallmark card warm fuzzy. He's saying, I'm telling you this so that by the truth, you will be strengthened to persevere. You'll be able to dig deeper and in that final lap, give a little kick and strive for the goal. It's not emotional language. It's sustaining, powerful language. Paul says, I can hang on because the mercy of God is holding me. It's helping me. Paul did not give up. So I want to pause here and give you a point or two of application. That's what my little diamonds are on my handout sheet. Some application so you don't miss it. Number one, Christians are not merely messengers, but we exhibit the mercy of God. Christians are not merely messengers of the gospel. Oh, let me tell you, God forgives those who repent and believe. Come to our church and repent and believe. Christians, whoever we are, especially preachers of the gospel, are exhibits of the mercy of God. Notice too, Paul's going to say later on, he says, he doesn't preach himself. It's not about us. But our lives display the powerful working of God, which we proclaim. If you tell a coworker that you're a Christian and they can be right with God too and have a hope of heaven and they just shake their head and said, your life is a mess. There's a disconnect. Here we want to see Paul connects his life and his ministry with the mercy of God. He remembers <clears throat> that especially in the difficult times when people were piercing him with their attacks. Thomas Watson reminds us very simply, God's mercy can drown great sins even as the sea covers great rocks. All gone. Out of sight by the mercy of God. The Bible seems to talk about the mercy of God when we are most distressed. And here Paul in his distress, his frustration with the people in Corinth. He takes it to heart, but he does not lose heart. A second application here is this. Do not grow weary. Do not give up. That is one of the big takeaways from today's sermon. And I just camp here for a minute or two. You, Christian... Me, Christian, may we not grow weary, may we not give up. 
Why is Paul even writing this to the very people that are bothering him? He's leading by example. He's trying his hardest to win them over with truth. And the truth is about God's mercies at work, so he's going to hang in there. Jesus is the one who called me. He's put this on my heart. He's reaffirmed my ministry. Let me give you a couple of examples of giving up. Well, I don't want to be too hard. Here's the question. What is the average length of span of a pastorate in the United States? How long do pastors typically stay with a church in the United States? And this is a survey among particularly uh, Methodists and Baptists. But the national average is close. Between, you have a number, between three and four years. 3.6 in the study that I paid attention to. 3.6. They say if you can make it to year four, you know, you can take a breath. Why is it that pastors move on after 3.6 years on average? And that to be in a church more than seven or eight years puts you in kind of the 1%? Now I really feel strange. Reasons for that third year departure from the study, just to to, to inform you, uh, the honeymoon period for the church was over. In other words, the church began seeing the imperfections in the pastor's ministry. Surprise, surprise. Uh, Many brought concerns about those imperfections to the pastor. Or the honeymoon was over for the pastor. Some of the promises made by those who sought him out were unfulfilled, and some pastors felt they were misled. When a new pastor arrives, most church members have their own expectations. And it's impossible to meet everyone's expectations, so by the third year, Some of the members are disillusioned and dissatisfied. Typically by the third year, here's the final reason of many. By the third year, the church has a number of new members or attenders under the present pastor's leadership. And the new people create tensions and change. And the old people might feel threatened. And you can see, they're trying to get a grip on it. But whatever the reasons are that would assail a pastor... The counsel first and foremost from me to other men and from other men to me over the years is stay the course. As much as possible, stay the course. The Bible would exhort us as believers in general and I think pastors in particular. Galatians 6.9, do not grow weary in well-doing. Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, believer. Those commands come to pastors and Christians alike. But coming back to Paul's point here, don't give up. That's the burden, that's the desire of the scriptures, that we would persevere where God puts us. Uh, the second heading today is to talk about the method of preaching, and then we'll talk about the message of preaching, the faithful method of preaching. And, and yes, here's just a footnote. Yes, preaching, it's something God invented. He said, uh, let's uh, do preaching. Paul says certain things he won't do, won't go there, won't do that. Paul says we have renounced Certain methods and messages, disgraceful, underhanded ways, 
He's not going to speak in those ways. Cunning or tampering with God's word. He's not going to mess with the message. He's renounced them. And that word renounced, it's, it's written in this aorist tense, which means he's not talking about a, a, a big decision date. Oh yeah, I learned my lesson on December 7th. You know. No, he's referring to the general characteristic of his ministry. It's something he continues to do and resist. It's interesting, that word renounced. When you became a Christian in medieval times in the church, there was actually a baptismal vow you would take, which included the sentence. And some continue to say these things today at their baptism. We renounce Satan and all his pomps, uh, meaning posturing and activities. We renounce. We're we're changing. We're not going to do that. And Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm not going to go there. Not going to do that. There's certain practices that are off limits. That's kind of peculiar to Christian ethics. How many people have heard of the great Machiavelli, who was a a, a political writer and observer and a historian and not a very uh, moral man? He's the one that we often cite when we talk about the ends justify the means. Meaning you can do anything you need to get to this destination because it's a good goal. So you can do a little bit of cunning. You can do some stuff under the table. That's Machiavellian thinking. And it really appeals to modern man. The ends justify the means. Oh, well, we have a good purpose in view. Because we want to do this for everyone, we're going to do this to everyone. Maybe we'll read more about Machiavellian Techniques in the headlines ahead, but the Christian is called to renounce wrongful ways, to make decisions. When we teach preachers how to preach or have our Simeon Trust preaching workshops in October, please pray for that. We're expecting a bumper crop this year as we hope to host that here. Uh, One of the principles, one of the important first principles we teach It's not complicated. It's called staying on the line. And as you're teaching that, you draw a line across the board. And you say, our text of scripture has a message. Having received this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Here's the message of the line. That should be the content of your sermon. You need to stay on the line, brothers, is what we say. You shouldn't go above the line or below the line. You try to stay on the line in your preaching. So here, if we're saying what Paul is saying, we don't want to go above the line and add to it that you can never be afraid or you can, any Christian who shows fear or ever gives up is disobeying the scripture. We, we don't add to what the text says. We just try to say what the text says. And we don't take away from the text either. You see, there are dangers in both sides going above or below the line of a text of Scripture. So faithful preaching means you won't go off that line. This is God's word. And you may want to say something about that. You may have a hobby horse over here. Oh, let me talk about baptism or let me talk about end times or whatever my hobby horse is. You can't do it. And stay on the line. You have to stay on the line. 
And in Corinth, there were sophisticated preachers and speakers and orators who were embellishing and saying other things. And Paul said, you're off the line, and I'm not going there. Paul did say he would openly state the truth of the gospel. Paul resolves, as we all should, to be above board. Do you know that metaphor, to be above board? I, I get it in my head and I run these things down when I hear a phrase because I say, what, what's behind that, above board? It goes back to the 1500s in, in literature where they talked about playing cards. And you got to keep your cards above the board, up on the table. You don't, you don't go down here to... Oh, I found my ace, or oh, I found the queen. You behave above board. Paul is saying we're openly stating the truth of the gospel. He's preaching and being plain. Paul would tell Timothy in one of his letters, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by it, professing for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Guard this deposit. Openly hold and promote the gospel. That's commendable. Now, Paul does mention something here that was going on in Corinth. People were saying, well, Paul, not everybody believed your message. There are a lot of Jews that disagreed with your message of the gospel of Jesus. So he takes it up in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verses 3 and 4 can sometimes unsettle Christians because it talks about the supernatural realities in a fallen world. What is Paul saying? He's saying that sinners are blind to the gospel. Paul had seen people reject the gospel. He had seen Jews who had the Old Testament reject Jesus, the Old Testament Messiah. So Paul says, I preach, I openly state the gospel, but not all will believe. He says, because the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now we have to uh, clarify that, that veiling is not, Paul's not saying it's permanent. I heard the gospel several times before I believed it. I was veiled and then the light broke through the veil. Paul is just talking here, it's in the present tense. Those who are perishing, it's present tense, not permanent tense. There will be no one who says, oh, I really wanted to believe, but I just, nobody took that veil off. It's not my fault. No. Their unbelief, their unwillingness, combined with the, the, the work of the devil to blind and mislead the blind... The sad realities. Some do not believe today and may not believe, but it's not permanent. Paul knew the message of Jesus when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was blind. And then he saw the light. I don't know if it's in our hymnal. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness. No more night. We're not going to change the hymn. Paul reminds us when he writes to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. 
spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. The gospel ministry is impeded by spiritual resistance and unbelief. That's a reality. When it says the God of this world, let me give you some help with that phrase uh, because it seems to be uh, giving uh, uh, a high title to the devil in verse 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world, and your Bible translation better use a lowercase g there. The Bible is not granting to the devil divine status. It doesn't do that. The devil is not omniscient. The devil is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not divine. He is a spiritual being, an angel, a created being under God who fell into sin and rebelled against Jehovah. So never assume that the devil has this divine power. He is a supernatural creature. He is to be feared like a roaring lion. But it calls him the God of this world uh, because of his functional role. He has taken charge of this fallen world with God's permission. He's allowed to roam only so far. And the translation here, it says God of this world. Uh, the, The Greek word is actually eon, meaning age or epoch. It's more a reference to time and the era we live in rather than the geography. God created the world and the world is very good. The world groans for redemption. The world is the Lord's and everything in it. But for a season, this evil being functions and plays and harms people. This age, this epoch, this eon began when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It was dealt a mortal blow at Calvary. And when Christ appears, the devil and his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire at the last judgment. So even though sinners are blind to the gospel, guess what? God sends preachers with the gospel nevertheless. Paul just said, unbelievers, they're veiled. They're veiled. Nevertheless, God sends preachers because here's a fourth point. God shines forth the light of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God brings about light even in the darkness. I love verse six of our text this morning. It says this for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis one, three has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God who can bring about physical light to an unformed dark mass at the beginning of creation when everything was formless and void and the spirit hovered there. He said, let there be light. And there was light. Did anyone see the moon last night in between those clouds? It was so bright. My front yard was illuminated. I just stood in the moonlight. Amazed that God would give us a lesser light for the night. God who can physically put light in the midst of darkness can spiritually 
shine on darkened, veiled minds. And where's the proof of that mercy of God? It's in Saul of Tarsus standing before you. And Saul of Tarsus and his ministry to Jews and to Gentiles was prophesied. One of my great famous uh, Christmas texts is Isaiah 9. You will recognize it immediately. There will be no more gloom for those who are in anguish in the former time, in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light on those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shined with the incarnation of the Son of God, with Jesus, the light of the world, who came and dwelt among us taking the form of a servant to lay down his life for his people. God brings light into darkness. God himself came in the person of Jesus, the light of the world, the word of God, light. Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, had become truth in Corinth because of the ministry of Paul. Paul did not lose heart because people were believing and things were happening And he still pressed on, despite the veil that's over many, because God pierces the veil. Paul would write when he gets to chapter 5 of this same letter, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Light and truth are often tied together. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Truth lights the way, the way to God. Peter would say in his second letter, we have the prophetic word, that's the whole Old Testament, made more more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says, people, God is shining through his word as he makes the gospel known And the world is changed by this. I think the application here should be we pray that God would release that power. We pray that God would remove the veil. We pray that God would be light in dark places. That's what we must pray. And we pray it for ourselves, that God would heal our spiritual blindness. That God would lift the veil of our unsaved loved ones. That God would pull back the veil across the the countries that practice Islam. That God would find the islands where Buddhism or the great nation of India where Hinduism has held people captive. That God would open eyes. I was blind, but now I see It's the work of God. He has that power. So we should pray. Paul would say in his first letter to the Corinthians, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. We need to pray that people would be able to come to Christ and confess Christ by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. That's the 
method of Paul's ministry to let God shine in his word. Let's look at the message finally and briefly. The message, Paul says very clearly in verse 5, it is not about us. Paul's been hit with arrows of criticism for his doctrine as well as his life. And he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. The heart of our message, the heart of his ministry was making Christ known. Explaining how Christ fulfills the old covenant and brings a new covenant. John Calvin said to himself and the preachers he trained in Geneva, he that would preach Christ alone must of necessity forget himself. We do not preach ourselves. We present Christ. And we present Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you see that emphasis here? It's not simply Jesus Christ as Savior from sin so that you live for yourselves. No, it's Jesus the Lord who saves. It's Jesus the Lord who rules the life of a Christian. I've not visited the Bible Belt much, but uh, it's common in the Bible Belt for people frequently that are churchgoers to get saved and then get saved again and to walk the aisle again and to come again to the Savior, to turn again and again. I think the problem with that kind of behavior is the mindset that you're coming to the Savior, but not to Christ as Lord. And you know, if you read the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to do that this afternoon, how is the gospel made known? If you read Romans, how is the gospel made known? It's call on the Lord and you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your lips, you shall be saved. You need to come to the one who is Lord, Savior and Lord. The message is about Jesus. Kent Hughes in his commentary reminds us that the three names, Jesus, Christ, Lord, really cover all the bases. Jesus, his human name, reminds us of the incarnation. The name Jesus, much like Joshua, means Jehovah saves. Calling him Christ, that's not his last name, that's a title, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, the man that God sent to save, is the Messiah, and the capstone is that he is Lord. He is divine, he is sovereign, he's in charge. So Ken Hughes says, thus, when you confess Jesus Christ is Lord, you at once confess his incarnation, his messiahship, his lordship, sealed by his glorious resurrection as he even now reigns forever. Paul says that it's Jesus and his glory that's made known in the gospel. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the word for image there is icon. He is the faithful representation of the Father. The message, the content also goes on to say it's about the glory of God. The application here, because it's all about Christ and promoting his glory, means that we need to understand that and live this way. I uh, enjoyed the recent Star Wars knockoff um, uh, called The Mandalorian about a kind of a soldier or a bounty hunter who all of a sudden has a, 
a wake-up moment and starts caring for a little child figure. And he, he uses all his resources to protect this child, and it comes at great personal cost. He has this saying that he says left and right, and you know the fans of the show because you'll often hear them say it or see it on social media. This is the way. Right? This is the way. Those Mandalorians who adhered to their code of ethics would say that one to another and encourage each other to continue to live in light of those truths. Christian, in light of what Paul has said about the mercy of God and the power of God and the glory of God, we need to say to one another, this is the way. It's not about us, it's about Christ. We need to live in the light. I think that's what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians when he said, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This is the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your ancient word, your true word with timeless application to us. As we would live for you, Father, remind us of your mercy. Sustain us by your mercy. May we believe in your power to pierce the darkness. And may we wait upon you to do so. Father, help us to stay in the light and walk as children of light and please you in all we do. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.